Welcome to the Light Bears Institute podcast, where we seek to improve biblical literacy by discussing key storylines and themes in Scripture. Welcome back to yet another Light Bears podcast. Brett Art here with Kevin McCollum for really three weeks in a row, and we're continuing our walkthrough of biblical theology. Kev, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing great. Uh, excited to be here as always. Um, Really grateful uh, for the teaching last night here at the University of Arkansas and looking forward to talking through some uh, New Testament stuff. Yeah, we uh, we, we talked about this uh, last night, just kind of the, the uniqueness of it. We've done this a while and uh, there's some great questions. The environment seems, I don't want to say a little more bought in, but it, it was fun for me as, as a hearer. I didn't know if, if, if you kind of felt that as a, as a teacher as well, if it was a little different for you. Yeah, I think uh, definitely. You know, I was talking to some students uh, last night that they themselves recognized that there was something different after some of them have been to the Institute, you know, for, for a while, my own, uh, kids have come, you know, and, uh, six years now and said that it was uh, radically different. And, and I think the, I left with the word hunger in mind, you know, there was just a, a hunger and we've seen it. Like, I feel like, you know, we have great students over the years and there's always this pressing in wanting to learn more, but there was something different as we walked from, you know, Genesis to revelation in two talks that really just engaged people at this. They kind of understood more, you know, God's big story. And I think there was a vulnerability last night that was just, um, maybe that was the dynamic, you know, some questions that um, maybe brought some tears to some others in the room and, and a real sincerity about how do you really know that you're a Christian? And, and what about, you know, if God's doing these things, what about, you know, suffering and what about, how's that affect me or, or, or why would he dwell this way versus that? It was just, it was really good. And as a teacher, it was a blast. You know, we took a break and the students are coming at break. Break's over, students are still standing there. At the, after it's over, they're asking questions. They're asking questions in the parking lot as, as uh, we're leaving to get to our car. And uh, I know a lot of you guys on staff were also answering questions. And, but it was uh, questions that were just sincere. And uh, just, again, go back to the word hunger, which makes it a joy to do what we get to do all the time, you know, is to be able to to feed that hunger with God's word is is pretty awesome. Special thing we get to do. One one of the and one of the joys I think is is being on staff is is that light bulb moment. I mean, I remember as a student uh, doing something similar of biblical theology, walking through in that aha moment of whoa, so this is tied. That Exodus ties into this. That 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 the Psalms. That all of this leads to this promised seed. And it's fun to see those light bulbs for students come on. I mean, we've, we've done this for a while. We've taught on this, but it's fun. It's, it's a joy. It is a to joy. Get to teach Absolutely. Uh, and to walk students through that. And so, so give us a, uh, uh, maybe a quick overview real quick. Uh, get us caught up to speed as we talk about the New Testament. Uh, kind of a quick, really quick overview of, of the Old Testament to, to lead up to the New. Right. So some key things we wanted to point out in the Old Testament. One starts with creation, right? You, you see this God who has purpose and, and meaning behind it. No indication, as we've talked before, you know, that he was forced to do that. So God creates the world. He creates a place for him to dwell, to put his glory on display, and to dwell with a distinct people. So in, in the beginning, Adam and Eve. And the fall happens. Uh, Adam and Eve, you know, disobey very simple requirements that God puts on them. And the world falls into chaos. You know, everything from human relationships, a relationship with God, to the cosmos itself, everything broken, everything you know, sort of off its axis. And yet God immediately provides a way to reconcile, to bring everything back together and to have that dwelling with his people again and putting himself on display. We talked about that in the last podcast, but Genesis 3.15, really huge. Immediately he says that that the woman is going to have an offspring. That seed of the woman will be bruised by Satan, but he crushed Satan's head. And so that story plays on. And her 
her descendants or her offspring will always be at war with the offspring of Satan. And so we see this conflict throughout the Old Testament. And so as Old Testament progresses, God moves from people in general to, to electing a family under Abraham that would bless the nations. And so you see this family play out. They become a kingdom. They get into captivity three times. They're delivered from captivity. God provides ways for him to dwell with his people through the law, through you know the tabernacle, particularly where he showed his glory there, filled the temple, filled the second temple as the people were back and sort of repentant before him. And he provides that way sort of for them to be in his presence. And that's really this sort of this motion throughout the Old Testament, almost like these labor pangs that come. You know, God dwells, people fall, God rescues them in their distress, provides a way for him to be in their presence again. They they have these high moments, call it the tabernacle, and then they begin to fall again. God rescues them. He provides another opportunity. And so you have this sort of pattern that continues throughout the Old Testament. All along, God dropping these promises. The woman's going to have a seed. Abraham's going to have a seed that'll bless the nations. The tribe of Judah will produce this king that will hold a scepter forever. And, and David's going to have someone on his throne you know, for, forever. And all of these things crying out, there is a one coming that probably is going to fix this mess all along. This, um, this pattern of falling away and, and not getting real forgiveness of sin, not an in, in, embedded righteousness that allow us to be in God's presence. And that ends in Malachi, 400 years now of silence, and then it gets us to where, really where we started last night. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, important, and, and I love where you picked up. So as, as we, we kind of conclude that in the Old Testament, we pick up in the New Testament, you kind of chose to start in John 1. Uh, and, and I mean, even what you were just describing in the beginning was God in Genesis. And then you pick up in John one, uh, starting in verse one. So talk about the significance of that and, and how that kind of connects. Yeah. John one wanted to start there because, well, there's a, there's a lot of reasons, but it, it really shows well how God continues this process of dwelling with his people for his glory and their good. And and so John one starts with in the beginning, exactly as Genesis one, one did. And so we recognize that we're supposed to tie those two events together. What we see is in John 1 is that Christ himself was there in the beginning, though he calls him the Word, capital W. We see that throughout Scripture, that Jesus is the Word. In Revelation, the rider on the white horse is called the Word of God, right? And so Jesus is shown in John 1 to be the Word, capital W, to have been at creation and to be the creator agent of the Trinity. So in Genesis 1, where we know, based on John 1, that God spoke, Christ created, the Spirit sustained you know, the work as God does in all his work, and the Trinity works that way. And so we wanted to highlight that in, in John 1 to say, now all this about God dwelling with his people, guess what? He's here in the flesh, John 1, 14. And that flesh has a name, and his name is Christ. Talk about, um, I mean, even that word, and the word became flesh and dwelt mm-hmm. among us. Talk about the, even tying that into the Old Testament, that word uh, uh, dwelt. Yeah, uh, you, you talked uh, about that last night. Sh- share about that a little bit. Yeah, so literally the idea of dwell or that word to dwell was to pitch a tent with. God became flesh and pitched a tent with his people, right? And that also is translated tabernacled. So we went back to Exodus. We talked about the tabernacle. It's how God created in Exodus a way for his distinct people to be holy and in his presence and for him to dwell in a tent among them and to lead them. Now Christ is dwelling and and tabernacling with us in flesh, God made man and dwelling with his people. And so it's intended to say the shadow is done. The reality is here. 
and and God has come to dwell among men, which is this amazing great news. It's it's again, and you did a great job of this last night of of that progression of in a tent and a temple, and then in the flesh. And obviously, we'll we'll get there more of of how that even progresses a little more. But I thought it was interesting last night as we get into to to John. Out of all these I am statements, uh, one of the ones you focused on was was I am the good shepherd. Right. Talk about that a little bit. Why use that to tie into to the Old Testament and biblical theology? Yeah. So we spent time in John ten, and I wanted to show that you know we're not universalists in our theology. Like Christ is dwelling on earth, and in a sense, walking among men. But really, Christ has a distinct people that he is a shepherd for, that he is um, dwelling among and will be for all eternity. So John 10 gets into two illustrations of Christ, one that he's the gate for the sheep pen, right? No one gets into the flock, if you will, of God without going through Christ, the way, the truth, the life. And so we wanted to talk about that, how that Christ himself fences off his own sheep. But then also he's the shepherd, the good shepherd over his sheep. Again, the point there being to the students that God has a distinct group of sheep. Those sheep are under the shepherd. And the scripture says that when the shepherd speaks, the sheep know that he's their shepherd, that anyone else that tries to take the sheep are thieves and robbers. They're trying to you know, climb over the fence, as it talked about. And one of the, uh, the images that, we, uh, that I gave last night was this idea of, of um, a field full of sheep and multiple shepherds have gathered together, right? And so um, when a shepherd gets ready to leave, he calls his sheep and his sheep know him. So those sheep will all begin to walk towards that shepherd. And then another shepherd will call their sheep and those sheep will start to walk. And so Christ actually has his sheep. His sheep know his voice. And I want people to see that salvation in Christ is a result of calling. That Christ calls his sheep, his sheep hear his voice, they recognize his voice, they come to the shepherd, and that shepherd cares for them and defines them as his own sheep. And not only does that, but he fences them in. And John 10 goes on to say, and no one can snatch them out of that good shepherd's yep. hand. What a, uh, and what a worshipful passage. I mean, even for some of the students that as we're, I'm thinking about last night and some of those questions, see a lot of head nods and just the, the affirmation to praise God. Jesus is a good shepherd. He has his sheep and he protects them and lays his life down for them. Yeah. And if you look back in the old Testament, wanted them to see that when Jesus says, no one will take my sheep out of my hand, we look at that for those of us who are the redeemed post-resurrection, right? Which is true, absolutely. But it was also true of the followers of God in the Old Testament. Egypt couldn't take them out of God's hand. You know, the Babylonians couldn't take them out of God's hand. The Assyrians couldn't take them out of God's hand. The Persians, you know, the Roman Empire, you know, God has his sheep and his sheep will not be lost because they have to take them out of the hands of the good shepherd, who, by the way, is also the Lord God Almighty. And praise God. Uh, it's a beautiful passage and, and worshipful. And you talked uh, last night, you actually mentioned if, if you're going to memorize a, a chapter of scripture, do Romans 8. But talk about that. Talk about uh, how worshipful Romans 8 is. Yeah, well, for me personally, you know, um, Romans 8 just builds. You're like, it starts with there's no condemnation in Christ. And it just rolls on and on to this idea that, you know, nothing can separate us from God's love. His love is everlasting and, and you know, without bounds. And, and man, I mean, you know, if, if I'm, I'm more fit days to go for a run, like by the time I'm <laughs> listening audio to Romans 8, by the time it gets to the end, man, I'm like, you know, I'm trying to uh, track down the Jamaican team. Like I'm, I'm on their heels, you know, in, in a 100-yard dash. 
Um, or I'm driving my car, I'm likely to get pulled over because I just get faster and faster. It's just a, it's an exciting passage. It's so intimate, so personal, but so rich doctrinally. And, and so I picked it not just because it's a favorite. I picked it because it's rich in doctrine and things that matter with our subject. We're talking about these, these great themes. It starts with the fact that we have no condemnation. Well, why do we not have any condemnation, right? I think that begs the question. Certainly throughout the Old Testament, they dealt with this, man, how is my sin going to be atoned for? And Romans 8 starts out and says, it's atoned. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Number one, Christ has paid for the sin of the sheep already. So there's no condemnation because Christ was condemned already. God wouldn't condemn again for the same sin, right? So Christ took that on himself and was already condemned. So we rest in that victory and in that payment because Christ did it for us and he's faithful and true. But another thing that's important to remember is that, not, and we get it in Romans 8 as well, not only did Christ pay for the sin that we deserve because we broke God's law, Christ also fulfilled God's law. So Christ lived out perfectly on earth the mandate, this, this covenant of works, perfectly before the Father, and, and in, in that became the new head of the human race, the new representative, the second Adam. And because God's law was fulfilled, then Christ earned the right, if you will, in that to take upon himself now that judgment for us. If not, Christ would have had to die for his own sin, and he wouldn't have been resurrected because the punishment for sin is death, right? And so we have this, this dual thing that happens. Christ lives out perfectly the covenant of works, fulfilling it, and then chooses to impute to himself our sin and righteousness back to us. So we stand forgiven at the cross, as the song says, and we're to be joyful for that. So Romans 8, just, then it just goes from there. You know, it just gets me stoked. So, so what, and, and you talked about this, and I love this. It's insanely worshipful. But now because Jesus, because of Christ, there's no condemnation. And because he has fulfilled the law, now what changes for us and how God dwells with us? You talked about this in Ephesians 1. Uh, how does it get even sweeter? Well, the sweetness is that now this great mystery, this profound mystery is known that God dwells within his people. So this, this dwelling of God among his people that has shown even in these grand moments like the, temp, the two temples, the tabernacle, and you know, the burning bush in times where God's manifests himself, now God has put within us his Holy Spirit and dwells within men. And dwelling within men, we know, as you mentioned from Ephesians 1, that that Holy Spirit dwelling is a deposit guaranteeing even our inheritance for a future permanent dwelling with God. So his dwelling within men is here to stay. And man, that's exciting and worshipful as well. And what a, what a great answer to all of the promises and all of the longings from the Old Testament to come to a point where God's actually dwelling within men. Yeah, that was, uh, I mean, you mentioned last night that, that term sealed with the, the Holy Spirit being like a signet ring of a king where he seals it, it's mine. Uh, I remember in my faith, as, as this was something I'm wrestling with, this passage in particular, that one in Ephesians 1, it's 13 or 14, was, was really a warm blanket to my soul, to, to, to that guarantee of the Holy Spirit, like a king in a signet ring, uh, sealing his people, which I thought was great. Uh, so, so talk a little bit about, so that's Ephesians 1, and now we're going to Ephesians 2, right. th- this whole concept of grace through faith. Why is that important? Talk a little bit about that. Well, it's important because... Without grace, we're hopeless, right? We can't earn our way. The, the law proved over and over and over that we can't live in such a way that's 
that earns, you know, uh, the right to be in God's presence. So God has to extend something to us and it's, it's grace, but he can't ignore the requirements and just redefine holiness just to make us, you know, happy or put us in his presence. So that's where the work of Christ had to fulfill all of that. So a just God remains just. And, but God extends grace to us. And as the shepherd calls, calls us to respond by faith. Those who respond by faith to the um, shepherd's call through belief in Christ and repentance of sin are the sheep in the fold. And one of the reasons I wanted to get into Ephesians 2, as we see in 2-3, you know, we had this past, well, that's but God did it. So there's God's initiative. And then it, it brings the Gentiles to play. So it shows that not only does God have a people in the Old Testament, the Jews, Hebrews, Israelites, that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan and the work of Christ on the cross equally draws and calls the Gentiles to faith as well. And, and so you have Jews and Gentiles, you have the people becoming one, unified before Christ together, the same sheep in the same pen. And then you see this beautiful picture how God now repins, if you will, uh, his sheep in things called the church. There's the church universal, but then the local churches. So if you have this image of a shepherd and a sheep in a pen, the church is to be that fencing in each locality to determine these are God's sheep, these are not God's sheep. We talked about that being the keys to the kingdom, you know, a reference in Matthew that people get wrong often. And, and we'll talk about this more uh, throughout the semester as we talk about ecclesiology and church membership and why that matters. But but even to, to that point, I mean, we, we push this as a ministry a lot, but the New Testament scripture does really not have a category for those who place faith in Jesus and are not a part of a local church. It's part of God's plan so that he can dwell with his people. This has been a part of his plan. And so that's that's vital for, for us. Uh, and it's it's again, it's, it's God's plan that, that we would be uh, in a local body and in his church. It becomes an almost an of course when you do a biblical theology, when you get to the point where God's clustering people into the church Absolutely. and giving them elders or pastors to equip them and gifts to serve one another. So when you get to that point in biblical theology where you see the church established, you're like, of course God has them in the church. But if you don't have a good biblical theology, you get a, a lot of banter about, is the church really a good thing? Is it effective? And all these sort of cultural things to where even you know last week, um, not one of our students, but another student asked, well, I don't, how do, where do you see the church in the New Testament? I don't really see it. You're thinking, well, are you kidding me? Like, like sincerely, let, let me help you see it. But, but, but with any sense of biblical theology, you get to that. There it is. And how, what a beautiful thing God's done here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was, uh, again, this was, this was me uh, of when I was a student. And, and again, I, I talk about that light bulb moment, but understanding that. Uh, and really, praise God now, me, my wife, uh, my daughter, soon to be, uh, kid number two, who uh, we will find out in a couple of weeks if it's a boy or girl. Uh, but but the, the, to taste and to experience the, the, the grace and the beauties of the local church, and and just to your point, Kev, of course it makes sense. We see this; it makes sense in doing this. And so now we see uh, God uh, God dwelling with man, Adam and Eve, in the beginning, uh, because of sin, were cast out. Uh, and then we see this plan for Him to dwell with His people, starting with Abram, uh, later become Abraham. We have a tabernacle, we have a temple. And then it gets even better. There's this great progression. Then we have Jesus Christ tabernacling in the flesh amongst his people. And then God's very spirit dwells with us. 
And yet, even it's not totally complete. And so that's when we pick up in Revelation 21. And so uh, talk about this. I mean, you, you talk about a glorious passage that, that we, as the saints, hope for and, and pray for and long for. Talk about the beauty of, of, of Revelation 21 and how this is really the, the crescendo of, of Scripture. Yeah, you got to end there, right? Uh, with a good biblical theology. And so Revelation 21, the reigning king returns. And he returns with purpose to restore all things. So all of these longings, all these types, all the labor pangs coming back to when the one, the one comes to get his people fully and finally establishing a new heavens and a new earth for us to dwell in. And a couple of distinctive things about, you know, Revelation 21, one, it talks about the bride waiting, longing for the groom and the groom is coming, right? So you know, it's, it's, here's the church again, referred to as the bride. We're to be preparing continuously for the returning groom. And you see the, the groom coming. There's some things we learn about this new heaven and the earth that are important with our, our narrative here. Number one, there's no tabernacle in the new heaven and the earth. Why would they need a tabernacle? They have Christ. They're able to stand in the full presence of God with the full glory of God, communing with God right before him. They don't need a, a priest, a high priest. They don't need you know, um, ceremony, they don't need structure. Christ is there with them. And there's no sun because the glory of God illuminates the place. And they have intimacy with the Father. This isn't a distant relationship. This isn't, there's no more longing to be in his presence. They're there and he treats them well. There's no death. There's no pain, no suffering, no tears. This, this Abba Father is here in our presence and where God is, there is no pain. There is no suffering and agony. And so we see all that on display. It's an amazing passage. You talked about, I think it's, I don't know if it's Revelation 20 or 21, but, but this proclamation of behold, now the dwelling place of God is with men. He will be their God and they will be his people. And, and then and it gets to that point. If he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, there'll be no mourning or pain. Uh, and what a glorious passage of, and praise God. And, and it's really to that end. That, that we, as, as, as John the Revelator kind of ends it, come Lord Jesus. Right. It's, that's what we're hoping for. That all of this, uh, that, that from the beginning, that first Messianic promise in, in Genesis 3.15, uh, and the Lord's mercy and grace lead to this point. Uh, and, and it's just, it's worshipful. It's encouraging. It's hopeful. It causes us to stand fast through trial. It causes us to to press forward in our faith, to proclaim the gospel with boldness, um, unashamedly. Uh, it gives us a joy and a hope and a passion and all these things to know that that day is coming. And, and so again, biblical theology, in that same manner that the Old Testament believers would have waited for the Messiah, and now you know we wait. Or, and so we actually wrapped up last night, and I sort of joked about it, that we're going to end our New Testament survey with an Old Testament passage. But we went back to Isaiah. You know, because the question then is like, what do we do now? You know, are we to, to sit around and just sort of wait and be excited for our hope, you know, um, or what are we supposed to do? And, and the Bible gives us a lot that we're supposed to do in the middle and we're supposed to be in our church, we're supposed to serve and we're supposed to be sharing the gospel and, and loving one another and loving God. And Isaiah 25, there's a neat passage kind of in the middle of Isaiah 25, six through nine. And, and he says two things, you know, as he highlights the fact that God is going to return and a lot of the language there, it sounds familiar when you read you know, Revelation 21. He says, we're going to do two things while we wait. We're going to rejoice in our salvation, and we're going to wait for our ultimate salvation. And that's where we are 
today, right? Rejoicing in what God's done already, but but waiting patiently for what's not yet. Yeah, it's what uh, uh, some scholars or theologians call the already, but not yet. We've tasted some of the the beauties of salvation, and yet that ultimate saving, uh, that glorification, that uh, that Revelation twenty one, we're waiting joyfully, uh, waiting for for that to come. Yeah, I think it's important to point out that only the sheep rejoice when that time comes. Right, it's not a day of rejoicing for those that are in another flock, and so it's a mandate for those of us who know Christ to proclaim Him. And a call out, if you will, to those who don't yet know him, who are, have heard the gospel, who have refused the gospel, or to take that, um, that calling seriously, to recognize there is an ultimate end coming, and that will not be a day of rejoicing. That'll be the worst day of their existence on planet Earth, right? That's a day they should fear. And yet again, the hope's there, right? But God, being rich in mercy, you know, Ephesians tells us, he can make us alive in Christ. and so. Man, if, if someone's listening and they don't know this Christ, man, they need to reach out to anybody at Lightbears. Their website, phone, student, staff, go to their local church, you know, find a friend who proclaims this Christ, because that day is now. That day to make that right is today. And I think that is also the biblical narrative that has to get our attention as well. This is the good news, that that doesn't have to be you in the end, that you can place faith in Jesus and rejoice uh, in being with him and, and ultimately dwelling with him, that he's our pride, that dwelling with God and getting Christ, that's our hope. And, uh, and it's, a, it's, a glorious, it's a glorious gospel. Uh, it's a glorious message. And, and praise God that, that he and his wisdom and his goodness has given us his word so that we can know that. Well, Kev, thanks for, for being here and, and walking us through this. Uh, it's been a fun couple of weeks as we've got to do this. Uh, and again, to that point of God glorifying himself by dwelling with the Holy Covenant people we're in that, we're in the already, and yet the hope of, of that fully being consummated is not yet. So we, we hope for that day. And so thanks for uh, for being with us here the last couple of weeks and teaching us on that. Yeah, it's always a great pleasure of mine. So grateful for the time, for sure. Thanks, Kevin. You've been listening to the Light Bears Institute podcast, a production of Light Bears Ministries. For more information, visit lightbears.com. Mm-hmm.